Good morning, beloved. It is a joy and a privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, one of my greatest joys that I've had in these 20 months serving as the executive director of Nine Marks is those rare but special opportunities that I get to kind of leave base camp and head out into the, to the front lines and meet with dear like-minded sister churches, uh, this band of brothers that the Lord, and sisters that the Lord has brought together in our, in our network of, of friendships and relationships. And uh, you all are near and dear to my heart, uh, both personally and also professionally, so to speak, as the executive director of Nine Marks. It is a joy uh, to see what the Lord is doing and has done and will continue to do. And I count it a privilege to be uh, part of this, like I said, band of brothers of uh, sisters who are fighting together for the gospel against a great army of, of darkness, of spiritual warfare in this world. But we rejoice that we fight on a team that has uh, the great shepherd, uh, a mighty warrior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can be confident that no matter what happens, we stand victorious in him as we have sung today. So what a joy it is to be a part of the church, the church local, the church universal, and what a joy it is to be with you all today. So let me, uh, let me pray and uh, again ask the Lord's blessing on this time, and we'll jump right in. Father, we do stand in awe and amazement that you have chosen the church to be a display of your wisdom to the world. Lord, we rejoice in the gospel promise that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin, and through that we have fellowship with one another. Lord, a blood-bought, supernatural, gospel-created community that is unlike any other community this world knows or has ever seen. And so, Lord, our prayer is a simple one, that you give us now a heart and a vision for this this community, this church that you have created and planned for your glory's sake. Lord, use my words now as I seek to, to exposit your words to encourage these brothers and sisters now in their faith and in their discipleship and in their life together. Fill us with your spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with, with a simple question, and here it is. What's the first thing you think of when you think about the church. What's your impression? Is it, is it positive? Is it negative? Is it, is it a little bit of both? Is it indifferent? Combination of all three of those things? Now, now what if you were to leave out here and go ask your, your friends who are not here, your co-workers, your family members, and you said, hey, hey guys, what do y'all think of the church? How would they respond? Is she beautiful in their eyes? Is she beautiful in your eyes? Or is she even barely noticeable? You know, growing up in Houston, Texas, where I was born and raised there, I have a twin brother and a sister. We grew up in a non-Christian family. We grew up going to the Unitarian Church. And my feeling and perception towards the church were not good ones, actually. Uh, the churches that I saw around me, sadly, like most of the marriages I saw growing up, were, were actually better pictures of hell than heaven, in, in my mind, in the sense that, in the sense that you know, at best, the churches around me were hypocritical. And by what that I mean is that there was nothing distinct, nothing salty, nothing different than what I saw other kind of community groups doing. That was at best. And then, at worst, they were just outright deceptional, deceptive and delusional. Because at that time, I remember going up, every time I heard about a, a, a reverend or a pastor... It was usually with the headline, you know, financial extortion or, you know, miraculous miracle healings that I just, as a rationalist, as a Unitarian, I just, I just ridiculed. So to me, Christianity was at best a, a, a hypocrisy. At worst, it became a byword in my mind of what the church was amidst these financial exploitations, miracle healers, and other abuses that I saw in the community of Christ. But by God's grace, at the age of 22, I started attending a, a healthy church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church here in Washington, D.C. My mom had been converted, and I started attending because I still loved my mom, even as a non-Christian, wanted to encourage her. And uh, uh, basically, so divorce, mental illness, uh, adultery, uh, lots of bankruptcy, lots of things that hit our family. Things had fallen apart. Reason didn't work anymore. Um, and the Lord used that to bring my mom to Christ, and then the Lord used that to bring me to go to church with my mom, just to encourage her. And I saw a church that was very different, um, very different than the churches that I had seen growing up. There was a palpable love and purity and unity corporately that, that, that was distinct. And the Lord used that corporate witness to convert me a year later when I was 23. 
And then as I grew in the church, I started learning like verses like the one that we read today, 1 Peter 2, 12, to, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, okay, that was me, they, they, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And then I found out that's just Peter echoing Jesus' words, right? In, in Matthew 5, you know, where, where Jesus exhorts the church to be, to be salty, distinct, you know, to be a city on the hill, to be, to be a light in the darkness. I came to realize that the church is to be a display of God's glory, of, of his love and his purity and his unity. And that I experienced at that conversion time something that I did not experience for the first 23 years of my life. The blessings of God practically in the gospel, in the local church, that real beauty tangibly of being born again and having genuine fellowship. Now, unfortunately, this is not everyone's experience in the church. In America, even among Christian evangelicalism, the local church is often at best just assumed, but usually forgotten as a central part of the Christian life. So, for example, many college students, many college students that I knew going to college, don't usually go to church because, honestly, the parachurch ministries are better and more fruitful for one's individual discipleship. Or, after college, we move, we get a job, we get too busy. There's really not a good church around anyway. And again, honestly, we can find better ways to grow and minister as individual Christians. But if you look in the Bible, especially the New Testament, you can see a very different picture of the church. The scriptures actually point to the church as the most powerful weapon in the arsenal of the army of the Lamb. That if, if you can unlock the power of the church, this corporate witness of God's new society is the most fruitful means of fulfilling God's great commission and the great commandment. I mean, just, just think about it. It, it. It's like the nuclear bomb, right? It is just the most powerful weapon if we can harness that energy for good. Sadly, it ends up, though, like most nuclear weapons, getting in the wrong hands and being used for, for forces of evil. But if we could harness that power well, Imagine it. God's word is proclaimed here in this pulpit or out of the pulpits around the world in churches. And that, that word goes out and it, and it reverberates against these walls of the church into your ears and into your lives. And then that church gathered goes out those doors and these doors and scatters into to different workplaces, into different family situations, into different, into different just seasons of life. And that word acts as salt and gives a picture of what it means to have genuine fellowship, relationship, for which everyone made in the image of God has been created for. My friends, this is true power, is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life together. In Paul's letters to the Ephesians, we see an astounding portrait of God's new society, that is the church living together and fulfilling God's purposes as, as non-believers are converted, as, as believers are built up, and as God is glorified through the communion of our life together as a new society that he has created through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as your guest preacher today, I simply want to encourage you with this biblical vision of the local church. And I'm going to highlight at the end four blessings that come when we embrace this vision in our own discipleship. So to that, we're going to jump into the letter to, Paul, to the Ephesians to capture God's vision of the church. And in this part, I want us to see five things about this new society of God, the church. I want us to see first its foundation, number two, its construction, its purpose, its results, and its power. And then after we look at that kind of exposition, those five things, the, the five cornerstones of of God's new society. Then I'm going to give us four points of application of what this means in our life together. This is an expositional overview of the whole book of Ephesians. So we're going to, you know, if you think of it like a house tour, we're just going to run down the hallway and knock open the doors and peek our heads in. But this is not the slow room-by-room -room tour that would take, you know, three hours to do. Let me encourage you to do that later today or in the week. Just after you hear this sermon, read the whole book of Ephesians, 30 minutes. That's all it takes. And think about how this vision can apply to your own life and to Del Rey. Uh, as you're in your life together. But for now, we're just going to do, like I said, the quick running down the hallway tour 
of Ephesians. So go ahead and turn there now in your Bibles. We're going to start right there in chapter 1, Ephesians 1. Here in chapter 1, we see the gospel foundation upon which God builds his new society. Let's go there now. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. My friends, Ephesians is a, is a beautiful picture of reconciliation. So vertically, Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to God. And then horizontally, Christ reconciles all believers, both Jew and Gentile, to one another through the church. And the power driving this reconciliation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. That's what we see here in these opening verses, where Paul gives us the foundation for our hope, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, that gospel foundation. And then you notice there in the verses that follow the fruit of this gospel for us. Look again, Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 14. I'll read. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Beloved, the gospel is our only hope. It's the singular mark that defines the true church and the true Christian, or not. It's the one non-negotiable. Why? Well, because God always creates, God always saves through his word. It's the pattern of the Bible from Genesis 1, where God's word goes out and all of creation comes into being. To John 1, where that word becomes flesh and lives among us. The pattern of the Bible is always the same. God creates and God saves through his word. Specifically, the gospel. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to have a biblical church, a supernatural, blood-bought gospel community of redeemed sinners like me who had cursed the church before, living together for God's glory. The gospel is good news. It's foundational to God's new society. Why? Because God is the holy and just creator. He created all of this and all of us to be a display of his holiness, his love, his beauty. And yet we have rebelled against him. You see that from Genesis 3 on. And so in his love and his justice and his mercy, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take that penalty that we deserve. Condemned, Jesus stood in our place. Though he had no sin, he became sin for us. That if we are to repent of our sins, that means to turn away from living for ourselves and put our faith in Jesus Christ, believe that he is Lord, we will be declared righteous, will be made righteous 
and then will be declared not guilty in God's sight. And this gift, like I said, is offered freely, universally to everyone who will repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no better news. There is no better foundation for any community or group or anything in this world or the next. You see, because Jesus meets us at the intersection of darkness and light. And if you've lived in this world long enough, you know that this world is full of darkness, even as joyful Christians. Jesus meets us there at the intersection. That's where he stays, and he offers redemption. He offers adoption. He offers entrance into the family of God, into the church, if we trust and if we follow him. It's that simple. And it's also that difficult because the darkness is dark. It blinds. This gospel is the sole factor that drove the apostle Paul. For this, he labored and toiled to present everyone mature in Christ into the church. And this gospel is central to a biblical understanding of the local church. This is the foundation of everything Paul says and does. And and what's the purpose of all this? Well, look at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Go with me back to Ephesians. Look in chapter 1, verse 22. I'm just going to read two verses. Ephesians 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, the purpose of this gospel is is clear, isn't it? It's right there in verse 22, to build the church. Verse 23, to be his body, the fullness of God. So the church is the structure, the means, the body of Christ, of God on earth. It's the fullness of God. Those are Paul's words. So in God's economy, the gospel alone serves as the foundation on which he, that's God, builds his new society, the church. And, and how does he build this new society? Well, like he does everything, he creates it himself. We see that in chapter 2. So go with me to chapter 2. The first creation we see there in chapter 2 is in the lives of individual Christians. That's us individually. Uh, we have a new identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with our worth or our value. Look right there at verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And I'm going to read verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And do you see see what happens, my friends? Christ is used to construct this church. And it's a church that is to be a display of God's power, of God's glory. That's the rest of chapter 2. Look at verses 12 uh, through 22. I'm going to read these 10 verses together. We'll see that. We'll see what happens, the construction of the church. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, that's through Jesus, for through Jesus, him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's that gospel that I was just talking about. Christ Jesus himself 
being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by one spirit. That's a powerful picture. The gospel, you see that? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, verse 13, brings us into a new supernatural community of peace. It gives us a new identity, and it makes us citizens, members of the household of God. And so through Christ, this cornerstone, God constructs his new society. It's a building. It's a structure. it's, It's a holy temple. Brothers and sisters, are you beginning to see the picture that Paul is painting here of the church? So God, so God lays the foundation in the gospel. He constructs this new society, the church, through Christ, the dwelling place of God. And what's the purpose of this new society? Well, look at, look at chapter 3 with me. We'll go to chapter 3 and see the purpose of God's new society. So in chapter 3, first nine verses, Paul lays out his credentials. He basically says, this is why I have authority to say the things that I do. And then he goes on, verse 10, and it says the purpose of God's new society. Right there, verse 10, that the church might know the multifaceted wisdom of God through the church. Let me look at, let's look at those verses together. We're going to start in verse 8. I'm just going to read verses, Ephesians 3, verse 8, 9, and 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages and God who created all things. Here it is, verse 10. So that, that means here's the purpose, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, I think that phrase right there, through the church, is probably the most amazing statement in this whole letter to the Ephesians. That's the last thing I would expect to see at this point, where he's talking about how God's going to display his wisdom to the world. I mean, maybe I'm going to display my wisdom to the world through Jesus Christ or something glorious, some awesome miracle and powerful display of God's power and might. But what does he choose? He chooses the church. Fallen, sinful, backbiting, jealous, envious, covetous people to display his wisdom to the world and to the forces of darkness. I think this verse serves as the pinnacle of this letter. That is, this is the centerpiece where God is trying to show the importance of his new society because it shows that God's church displays his wisdom, not ours, his wisdom to the world. Verse 21, right there in chapter 3, you can jump down a few verses, further underscores this purpose of God's new society. Simply to bring glory to God the Father in the church and in Christ for all the generations to come. Look there at verses 20 and 21 with me. I'll read those. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you see, my friends, the significance of this? What, what is the church? It is, the church is an outpost of heaven. It is, it is the dwelling place of God. So that means that we, as the church of King Jesus, that means that we are an embassy for the kingdom of God. That we are ambassadors representing King Jesus. I love living in D.C., and walking past these buildings, these white, powerful, beautiful buildings that are building the kingdom of man. And I'm, I think that glorify, you know, it honors God. I love seeing just the beautiful architecture, the Pentagon, the Capitol, the Library of Congress. I get to see most all of those buildings just walking to work. But I love the fact that I get to walk into the one embassy in town whose king will not default, who will, be, who will not be accused of corruption, who will reign for eternity. What a joy it is to know that we live between two kingdoms and that we are representing King Jesus here as his ambassadors on earth, called to fully serve 
in one sense, this kingdom. So be faithful as lawyers, as politicians, as lobbyists. Do that for the good and glory of God. That is right. That is the image of God that you are exercising when you are faithful in this kingdom. But ultimately, the church, this community, is an embassy for another kingdom, one that will not fail. And so our faith is not ultimately about us, our best individual life now. It's about us together as a display of God's glory. My friends, this vision of the church, it's God's. It's his plan, and it's for our good, and it's for his glory. And we should be thankful for that. It's a privilege to be a part of that. And what's the result? What's the result of this new society after God constructs it? This vision, it it results in disciples being made. Disciples who walk in a way that is worthy of God and his glory. And that's what we see in Ephesians 4 and 5. So so Paul, in those last, uh, in 4 and 5, Paul is just spelling out the implications of what this means in our lives. The results. Look at Ephesians 4, 1 with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, jump ahead 14 verses. Jump ahead to uh, verse 15. Ephesians 4, uh, verse 15. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So that's supposed to be a result if we walk in a way that's worthy. Verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then Paul just repeats himself in chapter 5. Look at verse 1 and 2, chapter 5. He reinforces the same idea, just in a different example. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So so do you see what God is doing here? Through the power of the gospel, God is constructing a new society to display his glory. Its foundation is not our works, but it's the work of Christ on the cross. And the result is good works in us, the good works of the body of Christ living together. Evangelism, bringing non-Christians to Christ, and discipling, discipleship, that is building Christians up in Jesus, up in the gospel. And notice in Ephesians 6, particularly verses 10 and forward, the power behind all of this new society. The power in Ephesians 6, 10 and forward. Paul ends where he began. The power of all this is God himself. It is God's strength. It is God's armor in which this new society is constructed and powered. In him we stand In him we find the power for the mission that he's entrusted to us as ambassadors on earth. And do you see, I I, I love this final prayer of Paul. Do you see that there? It's in Ephesians 6, verse 18. Okay, Paul is the greatest evangelist after Jesus, okay? He is the man created and appointed by God to start the church, okay? This, This is no ungifted evangelist. And like I said, I think after Jesus, he's the best. So look at his prayer. How does he finish? Verse 18, right there in the middle. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Oh, that encourages me in his evangelist, that Paul, the apostle, the founder of the church, you know, through Jesus, was asking for prayer that he may declare this boldly as he should. It was a joy preparing this sermon for you all and praying for you all this week. And just this morning, as I read Ephesians again, this was my prayer, particularly for this congregation in this exciting new time, that you all as a church may proclaim the gospel uh, boldly as, as Paul did. I love this biblical vision of the church. I hope you see that it's not a nine marks vision. It's not my vision. This is God's vision of the local church. And in Ephesians, Paul gives us its foundation, its construction, its purpose, its results, and its power. So there it is. There's an expositional overview of the whole book of Ephesians. I know that's a lot. 
we, uh, we uh, normally don't encourage expositional preaching whole books at one time. But, uh, you know, that big picture view is kind of useful sometimes to just see, like I said, the big picture, the landscape. And I hope uh, to some extent I've done that faithfully now. What I want to do now in these last few minutes together is just say, okay, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as individual Christians, as, as a church? Um, how can we apply this vision to our life together here? And what I want to say simply is, at its simplest, is, is that you should covenant with a healthy church for your good and for God's glory. Basically, that's the, the, the brunt of what I think Paul is trying to say here, that you as a Christian, practically, what this vision means is that you need to be in covenant fellowship of a local church as a member for your good and God's glory. Whether you call it a member or not, you, just need, you need to be covenanting. I think membership's important. I like that word. But don't get hung up on that word. The idea here is this, is this idea of covenanting together for your good. Because the local church is to be the center, the hub of your Christian discipleship. It's God's plan to bring him glory. You see, you're his bride, and you've been purchased through the gospel, but it made, into the, uh, made a family. But this bride, this you, is a plural. It's in, uh, 90% of the time, you look at the you in the Greek here in the New Testament, whenever these commands are given, it's always a you plural, never singular. Or I should say rarely singular. So you should join and commit to a local church out of obedience to Scripture. The idea here is that if you are a Christian, God's purpose in saving you was that you might bring glory to him through the life that you live in communion with other Christians. If you do not join yourself with a body of believers in order to live that out, you have failed to do what the Bible says is absolutely fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. You see, it's not about you or me. It's about you and me as a part of a church community bringing glory to God. And like I just said, I believe that this is the weight of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. And I pray that it bring you great encouragement, both individually and corporately, to see that God, in his amazing plan, is using us to display his glory to the world. I mean, wow, that is an awesome and a, and a humbling plan. So let me give you four biblical reasons why you need to be part of a local church. These are the tangible benefits and practical application to this biblical vision of the church, of covenanting together with a group of other believers in your area. And the first one is for non-Christians. Be a part of a church for non-Christians. You see, when Christians join a church and live faithfully according to God's word, they help collectively clarify to non-Christians what Christianity really looks like. So as Christians commanded to love and follow Jesus' examples, we have the ability in our ministries to bring light into darkness just like Jesus did when he embraced the world's hurt and sorrows. This will encourage and serve your fellow believers, but also it will be a wonderful light in the darkness to the unbelieving world. So one implication is that while unbelievers are always encouraged to come to church, they cannot be members. The church should consist of Christians only. And this actually helps evangelism because it makes clear who is a Christian and who is not. It allows a clear light in the darkness to shine. And this will be attractive in the best, most biblical sense of that word. That word. I mean, that was my testimony. That was what attracted me to Christ, was that beautiful witness, corporately, of a true church. Remember, the church is the best evangelism program out there. It's the most powerful weapon in the army of the Lamb. So join a church for non-Christians. Number two, join a church for Christians. So there, there are many practical aspects uh, for the Christian of why it helps to be a member of a church. I just want to give you three blessings that come to Christians when they covenant together. Number one, the blessing of, of accountability. God never intended for his children to live as solo Christians. Hebrews 3.12 makes that very clear. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see what we're doing when we join a church? We're saying, I can't do this by myself. I need help. I remember when I became a Christian, my first Friday night as a Christian, right? I, had, I, was, I was bartending and waiting tables in Georgetown. That was, so that was my previous life. I had no idea what to do. I walk into Mark Dever's study and I say, 
hey, Mark, what, what, what do Christians do on Friday nights? You know, I remember what I used to do on Friday nights, and Mark just laughed. And Aaron Minikoff was the pastoral assistant at the time. Aaron came on over, and Mark gave me a book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I joined Annie Johnson's small group later that week. And slowly, that church came alongside me and, and held me accountable and helped me, grow in cross, helped me grow in Christ. But you see, we are not meant to be alone. We need to join a church for that benefit of accountability. I need other Christians to help me. I needed other Christians at the beginning just to figure out what to do on the weekend. So you cannot be held accountable, though, if people don't know who you are. You have to be involved in the lives of others in order for us to help you. So one implication here is that church should consist of Christians who are willing to hold one another accountable, to be involved in the lives of others, and if necessary, to discipline a fellow member who is unrepentant of sin. So in this sense, the church acts like a spiritual assurance of salvation cooperative, where we're not judging and not saying who's going to get into heaven and hell, but we're encouraging one another by the signs and the benefits that we see or don't see uh, in each other's lives. And accountability is not a silver bullet. It is not the gospel. There will always be sin in churches because churches will always be full of sinners. And so you should never, and we should never, overlook abuses of accountability and authority. My friends, authority and, and accountability are beautiful gifts of God. But sadly, in marriages and families and churches, they are, they are often abused. And that, that, I think, is one of the most pernicious evil things that Satan can do to undermine the gospel itself. Do not tolerate abuses of authority or accountability. You as a congregation, that is your responsibility to make sure that authority and accountability is stewarded well, organically in your life together, but also in your leaders. But that said, don't reject authority and accountability just because of the potential of abuses. Uphold it and treasure it and fight for it. Sin does not thrive in the light. 1 John 1, 9, this is the gospel promise. If we confess our sins, that means if we bring sin to the light, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So the goal in our churches should be a culture where we learn to give and receive godly encouragement, not flattery. The world flatters, and it does it well. Christians give and receive godly encouragement. And we should also learn to give and receive godly, constructive criticism. Not harsh, destructive, hurtful criticism. That's what the world does. But godly, constructive criticism. Benefit number two for the Christian. Join a church. So accountability was number one. Number two benefit. Join a church for love, encouragement, and discipleship. Love, encouragement, and discipleship. Basically, stronger and weaker Christians need each other. Stronger and weaker Christians need need each other. Um, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, and I saw a lot of herds of cattle and cows, but I had never seen a herd of sheep before until I went to England. Uh, we did an international scout camp in high school. It was pretty cool. But we're driving out to this, this camp um, in the English countryside and uh, driving along one afternoon, and I remember seeing a flock of sheep for the first time in my life. Now, there, there was a whole flock of sheep right there in front of us, and they were literally on the road, so I could see them because we couldn't get through. Our, our car was blocked by these sheep, so we were, I mean, it was like as close as me in this first row. I'm looking at sheep right now for the first time in the car. I thought sheep were white and, and clean. No, they are not white. They are dirty. Um, they're, they're actually like yellow and black. You know, from a distance, you can see a little white, but they're, they're, they're not white. Um, they're dirty, and they're messy, and they're stupid. It was, it was, I mean, I was a teenager. We were just having a, a hoot laughing it up in the car. But watching these sheep, because we had 10 minutes because there was nowhere to go. These sheep, they were biting each other, you know. Some were falling into the ditch. Some were going the wrong way, you know. And it, it was almost hilarious. But the, uh, they were, they, there they were for 10 minutes. Though the shepherds and the sheepdogs kind of were doing their work faithfully. After 10 minutes, this flock of dumb, messy sheep made it down the road into the, into the sheepfold safely. And it was amazing. So we kept on going, and there it was, my first experience to, to seeing a flock of sheep up close and personal. But you see, my friends, those dumb, dirty sheep that bite one another and are easily swayed off the path when they want something and don't get it and that fall into ditches and go the wrong way, you know, that, that's, that's us. That's me, you know, whether, whatever your title, pastor, executive director, you know, preaching, senior, so-and-so. We're all included in that flock of sheep. So what I'm trying to say here 
is pretty simple, that we're better stuck in the middle of the flock, even if it slows us down in our own discipleship or inconveniences our lives now. Why? Because if you know your own heart well, you know that it is actually more dangerous to be alone, that means outside the flock, or even on the edge of the flock, because we're prone to wander. And it's true, I guarantee it, that joining a flock of believers in this church will definitely slow you down and inconvenience your life. Guarantee that. But have you ever considered the fact that maybe in God's plan, he wants you to lock arm with these dumb, dirty, slowing you down sheep? And yeah, it's going to slow you down in one sense, but maybe his plan is to lock arms with them so that you can kind of help speed them up. To kind of, like, like I saw after 10 minutes or so, get them safely down the road safely into the sheepfold. Older men and women are commanded by Paul to disciple and encourage younger Christians, Titus 2. In that same verse, younger Christians are also called to care for and love older Christians. Again, Titus 2. In the church, there is no such thing as an individual Christian. God has bound us together as one body in Christ, and he's commanded us to care for one another. Where? Hebrews 10, 24, 25 is just one very specific example. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is in the habit of some, encouraging one another, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, the implication is that stronger and weaker Christians need to make their love for Christ definite by loving others in a purposefully committed fashion, by not forsaking assembling together as a church. You know those, you know those one another commands that, that Jesus gives and then that Paul echoes? Kind of commands like, like love your neighbor, uh, serve, you know, outdo one another and honoring one another. There's a list of, actually, I've written them out. It's about 35 one another commands, individuals. The only way you can faithfully apply those one another commands is if you're covenanting in a local church uh, to, with other Christians and leaders that make all this possible. There's no other way to be faithful to those one another commands. So we should join a church for Christians because it helps with accountability, benefit number one, but also with discipleship, encouragement, and love. And finally, we need to join a church for Christians to help share responsibility. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we have the longest teaching in Scripture on the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians verses chapters 12, 13, and 14. In these chapters, the Apostle Paul teaches clearly that our spiritual gifts are from God in order to share responsibility in the church and to build one another up. So for Paul, here it is. What are spiritual gifts? For Paul, it equals meeting the needs of the church. So no spiritual inventory required. Now, of course, you need to know the way that God's made you and use your gifts well. Of course, uh, you know, do what you love and the way God's made you. That honors God. But if it's making bulletins or, I mean, you are starting, uh, you know, many good new works here. Whatever needs to be done, turn the lights on, you know, rake the leaves. That's your spiritual gift. Whatever builds up and meets the needs of the church. So we want to join a church to share responsibility. You know, Peter captures this well uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and uh, chapters, I'm sorry, verses 10 through 11. Let me just read this. I love this picture of God's very diverse grace coming together. Listen to this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Did you that phrase, just take that home and meditate on that. As good stewards of God's varied, that just means diverse, grace. So you see, our spiritual gifts are like, are like a beautiful stained glass window, right? Each of you all represent a different color, a different shade, a different piece uh, of this mosaic. And there's a wonderful diversity in, that, in, in, in the best stained glass windows. You just see a richness of colors and array of patterns. But there, when that light shines through that stained glass window, the light just brings a certain unity to that diversity, and it makes a glorious picture. Well, that's true with the church. That's what Peter is saying here. When our gifts, diverse, on our backgrounds, our, our ethnicities are all united together, and the light of the gospel shines through, 
it just paints a glorious picture of God's diverse grace. There's a unity and diversity that only the church can be a picture of, and it just leaves everyone made in the image of God speechless. So this means that there is a place for every member to serve in the church practically, and it's our joyful privilege to figure out what that means uh, in our daily lives together. You see, what better way is there to make your love and responsibility concrete than to commit yourself to a local church where you can both be cared for and at the same time care for other Christians? So, number two, join a church for Christians. It helps with accountability, it helps with discipleship, and it helps share responsibility. Finally, uh, the reason number three and the four, these last two are very short, uh, join a church for church leaders. You know, some churches claim to have thousands of members, and praise God if, if they do. I, I think that's a good thing, and that's not bad to have a church with thousands of members. We see, we see examples in the Church of Jerusalem. But yet only a small percentage in some of the churches today of those members actually attend that church on any given Sunday. So what happened to those other members who are not at church? Now, for church leaders especially, this is a sobering reality, especially since in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New, the Bible consistently holds the leaders accountable for shepherding the flock and for knowing each sheep. Let me just give you one example here in Hebrews. In Hebrews, the leaders are commanded to keep an account of those put under their care. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Beloved, on the final day of judgment, Scripture teaches that your pastors, your elders, will have to get, hold the hands of all the people who have been entrusted to their care. will have to hold the hands of every member of this flock, and they will have to give an account for each soul. That is a sobering task, especially if you ask yourself, how can a leader know, how can a leader lead for how can a leader, I'm sorry, how can a leader know, how can a leader lead, how can a leader care for members who don't even come to church? It's a formidable yet glorious calling. It is exactly how our great shepherd has cared for us. And it's why he's called every church to have godly leaders, to gather and protect the flock, to minister the word of God, and to equip the saints for the ministry. This, uh, this picture uh, of, of, of joining a church for, for your leaders is actually a beautiful exhibit of God's kindness and his wisdom. You know, it was a joy uh, in my own experience serving as an elder at Clifton Baptist Church. Uh, I was there from 2005 to 2010, and I've been a Christian since 1997. No, no, sorry. Yeah, is that right? 1997? Ooh, time flies. Nine to 14 years. But anyway, three great, I mean, I've had many great things that happened in these 14 years. The headline of my life is better than I deserve. But the three kind of greatest, if I had to kind of quantify them, would be, number one, meeting my beautiful wife, Tara Beth. Uh, she has been a great gift um, to me. Number two, being the father of my five children. And then number three, getting to serve as a pastor, as an elder at Clifton Baptist Church. Um, just personally, just the, 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 the kindness of God in that experience of my own discipleship. But, but, why, what, but, but mainly just seeing the wisdom and kindness of God for the benefit of the flock as a whole. I was one of the two full-time pastors at the time. So, and as a pastor of administration, I got to put together the agendas for the meetings. I got to make all the recommendations. I loved it, you know. Uh, I got to be the entrepreneur, the driver, the builder. And I would go into those elder meetings with tons of ideas and recommendations and motions and then, you know, communication things. And praise God that there were these other godly, like-minded men who could kind of check me and could offer insights and wisdom and perspectives that I didn't see. And I would consistently walk out of those elder meetings being like, I am so thankful to God that I am not the sole pastor of this church because it protected the church from the full brunt, the full, you know, impact of my, uh, of my uh, wisdom and responsibility and, 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 and just the authority that had been entrusted to me as an elder. I just saw the wisdom of God and a plurality of men, though it slowed things down. Uh, you see how God protects his church, his sheep, from a plurality of like-minded godly men. My prayer, then, is for all of you, members and elders alike, to have a similar testimony. That's my hope and prayer, especially as Garrett comes on and, and this elder board continues to grow and this church continues to grow. 
may you all be committed to this local church for your leaders. Finally, to conclude, join a church for God. That's the fourth and final reason. You know, it's interesting. If you look through the book of Acts, it's the Lord who adds people to their number. And being added to the Christian's number meant being identified as the church. That's the storyline of Acts. And the most striking illustration of this connection between God and the church takes place in Acts 9, in the story of Paul's conversion. Now, at this, at this point, his name's actually Saul, and he's on the road to Damascus to kill and persecute Christians. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. Jesus appears before Saul. He falls on the ground. And uh, do you remember what Jesus says to him? So this is the Lord Jesus, his first words to Saul. He says, well, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute Christians? He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute the church? Nope. His first words to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute me? That's why I think Paul got his image of the church as the body of Christ. In Acts 20, it says that the church is the body of Christ and that God has bought the church with his own blood. I think Paul realized that in his first conversation as a Christian. Beloved, I don't know all the bits of your life and how you've been brought up to regard the church. But in the New Testament, I can tell you the church is regarded as the body of Christ, bought with God's own blood. This is what God is about, this body, this church. So many of the things that we understand to be Christian are not simply individualism, but are actually virtues that express themselves in relationship with other people. So ultimately, we want to be a part of a church for God. So my friends, there it is, a a biblical vision of the local church and practical implications for our life together. This picture is both a challenge and a comfort, isn't it? I mean, it's a challenge because biblically we have a clear responsibility for one another. But it's also a comfort because we know that we will be cared for, we will be loved, we will be prayed for by God's own family itself. My prayer is that at the least, at the least, you've begun to understand the beauty and the power of Christ in the local church. And may God give you the joy and the passion to continue this conversation with your pastors, with your family, with one another, to think about what it means to live as a Christian in his church for your good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for your bride. Grow our love for you and for your church, we pray, that our lives together may be a wonderful display of your glory to the watching, dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.